Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined as always by Brian Gottlieb. And we do have a top 10 for D&D adventures in the Forgotten Realm today. And I'm actually kind of excited about it. We were like pretty lukewarm on the set. And I think the last couple of days of previous season were good. But before that, uh, I got I to gotta talk about worlds. Is that OK, Brian? Uh, I will allow it. I might have very little to say, surprisingly, since I almost never have very little to say. But I kind of feel like I've said my piece at this point. But I do want to hear what you have to say. So they effectively gave the money back. Yeah. They gave everyone a $50,000 appearance fee, which totals, uh, I think, $800,000, which is more than the actual amount that they took away. And my major feeling on this is not, oh, they did the right thing and gave the money back. It's why why they even bother? You know, like they, they do these things. They take all the negative repercussions. They walk it back. But it's not really like much of the faith is restored. I mean, I've seen some like basically what amounts to like bootlicking posts about it, right? Where they're like, oh, thank you. You did the right thing. You're so great. Maybe things will be better. No, they're not going to get better. They've been doing this stuff for the last five, 10 years, right? Every, every instance of pay the pros that has ever happened, they do a thing, they try and take money away, they get blasted for it, and then they give it back. And I don't know, for whatever reason, this time it feels different where people are like, oh, they finally did the right thing or whatever. And it's like, no, this is the exact same thing that they've done before. Do not trust them. I agree. I don't, I don't have to add anything. I just agree with what you say. Oh, wait, I have one thing to add. I, I have a reason why this may have happened. Why? Uh, someone messaged me, asked if I was interested in helping gather people for a class action lawsuit. Uh, someone, an attorney with experience in the field, they they thought they had a solid case. They wanted my help with it. I, I didn't even respond. I have no interest in doing that whatsoever. Um, just not something. I, I have passed that part of my life. I don't want to engage with the legal system really in any way whatsoever. Uh, but, you know. Who knows what happened? Maybe they got some notice. Maybe their lawyers were like, oh, this is a little dicey. I don't know if we should do this. So there was definitely people out there who who thought there was maybe a, a play to make as far as the legal side of things go. I don't even want to opine on on that, but so I'll just tell you someone messaged me. So, uh, Well, I mean, I know that in all of their fine print, it says that they can alter the price structure at any time. So I don't know how relevant that would have actually been, but- yeah, there's this thing called promissory estoppel. And if you want to know more about it, just Google it. I'm not going to waste a yeah, whole bunch cool. of our podcasts talking about it. But despite that disclaimer, there is still a legal theory which could point to them still having liability. Okay. I mean, it's also interesting to me that they gave everyone 50K versus just putting it back in the prize pool, which disincentivizes like an individual to take an action, such as, I don't know, sitting out of worlds, protesting, making mm-hmm. a stink of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm also just confused as to like why they care and why they're scared of that sort of thing happening, because in my mind, if it happens, like what what further negative repercussions could they have? Right. Like they're just burning it all down anyway. Who cares? Like if I were them and I decided that I'm going to just like, you know, take all this money away and then people got mad about it, I would have been like, yeah, saw that coming. Don't care. You, you did know people were going to get mad before you did it, right? Like, I would it hope so. should not have come as a surprise. Anyway, that is my my four minutes on Worlds. I'm done. People, things are not getting better. They're not going to change, okay? Just please be aware of that. That's I, I am totally fine leaving it at that. D&D, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, last couple of days were not bad, Brian. I'm I agree. Lie. I came around hard on this set, actually. I... It was a combination of two things. Uh, one was just like the back of the preview season being sort of loaded up again, which uh, I, I I think they should be more proactive about managing that. I don't I don't know. I like I, if it were if it were me, I'd want to get out in front of the negative sentiment and just like kind of front load things a little bit. And I feel like they used to, um, but it it feels like either they're not curating it all that hard or just. Uh, don't care anymore. I'm not sure what the case is, but I would do it differently. So the early part of preview season was weak. The end part was strong. Uh, also, I went for Star City and did my like Strixhaven exit review. And I was just like, wow, Strixhaven was awful. 
It like, was absolutely awful. And this set's way better than Strixhaven. So if that's like kind of the measure, the new measuring stick, then things actually got a little stronger this set, I think. And, uh, you know, as I've built on this first day, cards just came out uh, like six hours ago, seven hours ago now. Uh, I'm finding powerful strategies. I think there's like things that are completely outmoded. There's just certain styles of magic you can't play while things like Emergent Ultimatum exist. And uh, there are certain best options, which, you know, adventures are are real. They're problematic. Uh, Good cards. Good cards. They're pretty good cards. Yeah. Um, But I'm finding some spots of hope, which is which is better than I thought we'd be doing when we did this review. Same. In regards to preview season, though, I wonder if it is being curated, but just for a different audience. That's possible. Yeah. If that's the case, cool. I fully support that. But like, I also feel like there is definitely some merit to trying to serve both audiences, right? It's not like, oh, you can only, you know, preview two cards a day or whatever. No, they're dropping like 10, 20 cards a day, especially during these accelerated preview seasons. Yeah, this so, goes this goes to the same discussion we've been having for like three weeks now, right? It's like you could you can serve both audiences. You don't have to just serve one, but if you right. don't care about one, then you're not going to, and you're going to do it the way uh, that you think makes you the most money. So, and in in this day and age, certainly I understand not caring too much about the folks that are competitive leaning, uh, just as far as you know actual dollars made per person or whatever, but. When I think those folks drive a lot of the discourse on social media, then yeah. you probably should care. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think it would have been that hard to throw some of these cards like towards the beginning of preview season, but whatever, you know, we'll get into it. Sure. Ultimately, though, uh, going to do a top 10 list today, uh, a classic top 10 list. I asked how people wanted us to do this, and then we've completely ignored uh, their response. And in fairness, the the response that won has absolutely nothing to do with magic. So you've kind of brought this on yourself. I can't take the crowd opinion all that seriously anymore. It's kind of like a Bodie McBoatface situation. So we're just doing a classic top 10 list today. I don't know what that is, and I'm not sure that I want to know, but I will say that I voted for old school top 10. Okay. So you got what you wanted. That's what's important. (laughs) I mean, joke's on them. I was probably going to get what I wanted no matter what. (laughs) That'll teach them to participate. Uh, Yeah. Classic top 10. This one is mostly, uh, you know, discussion between the both of us and uh, top 10 that we're pretty happy with both of us overall. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of huge disagreement. I think we came to our number one card pretty quickly. The stuff that's in the middle, uh, you know, the the placement can probably vary a bunch. Like you, as usual, three through 10 are all pretty flat. Uh, Maybe four through 10 are all pretty flat here. But I I am also happy with this list. I think we've drilled in really quickly as to what's going to matter in this set. Or at least what we think is going to matter, right? Right. Obviously, it could be way off. So going to start off with an honorable mention or dishonorable mention, I suppose, depending on how you want to look at it. This is a card that I don't think either of us are very high on in standard, but enough people seem to like it that we're it's giving us pause. We're just like, well, are, are, are we the, the idiots here? Who knows? Uh, so that card is Demi Lich. I'm going to read all these cards. Yep. This will be the last episode that we do this. Uh, you know, future episodes talking about these cards, we'll probably just talk about them and hope that you know what they are at that point. But Demulich is UUUU, so four blue mana symbols for a 4-3 creature, skeleton wizard. This costs you less to cast for each instant and sorcery you've cast this turn. Whenever this attacks, exile up to one target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard, copy it, you may cast the copy. And you may cast this from your graveyard by exiling four instants and or sorcery cards from your graveyard in addition to paying its other costs. A lot of text. A lot of text. A lot of powerful text. A lot of stuff that reads really strong. Sort of think this card is garbage. Like just straight up almost unplayable in standard. And I'm so afraid to say that because everyone else is all about it and really excited for it. Um, and I've been wrong about stuff before. So for there to be such a huge, huge gap, it felt like we had to make mention of this card, maybe just even highlighting uh, how dumb we are if this does pan out and prove to be one of the best cards in the set. But I think it's so hard to extract value from this. It has very few profitable attacks. Uh, it's 
sort of fragile. Cost reduction is not going to come up all that often in standard and older formats. You could you could sell me on this. Things like Metamorphos certainly do a lot to make this more appealing. Uh, to say nothing of just like the pure Phyrexian free spells that exist. And in those spots, maybe Demi Lich is important. Maybe it's just going to fit right into these uh, Is It Delver decks, which have sort of taken over modern in the last couple of weeks. But in standard, I'm not seeing it right now. I look forward to someone proving me wrong, though. Cost reduction, good attack trigger, cast it from your graveyards if you happen to mill over it. All sounds and, good. Yeah, and it's still just like, I, I don't know what kind of deck this goes in for standard. Now, uh, for historic, I think it, it's probably a different story. I could see playing a couple copies of this in Is It Phoenix or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, for standard, it's just like, it, it's it's four blue mana. So that's pretty tough. Although, say you have like blue, blue RR and you go like shock, shock, then okay, this thing is castable, right? Yep. But yep. It's still just like, what what deck am I playing that I actually want this? And if you're just doing it as like a fair thing that can maybe come back, you're not going to get the mana reduction really, except from something like Opt or whatever. But I don't know. It's it's just, yeah, it's weird to me. And maybe this starts showing up in like some really good looking shells and I change my tune. I don't know. But right now I'm, I'm not seeing it. I see the power, just not where it fits in. Right there with you, although in the course of this discussion, I do have a card I want to pair with this, but we're going to talk about that card later, so uh, we'll get there when we get there. Fine. Uh, Number 10 through 15, or whatever. The Creature Lands. The Creature Lands. I'm not going to read all of them. I read them last week. They're all pretty solid. Uh, The tension between them and Faceless Haven in monocolor decks is certainly pretty real if you want a little bit of an added boost. You can certainly play like a couple copies of these in uh, two color decks. Again, you're going to play probably like a couple copies. And I can't really think of a home where, you know, you just want to jam like, you know, six of these or even four of these really. So uh, maybe like a control deck wants a bunch of the blue one or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's about the only spot I could see for a a huge number of these. Um, But I've been happy putting just like one or two in a bunch of my decks. The the question about monocolored decks is real interesting, I think. Uh, Mono Green in particular is a deck I've paid some attention to in the preview season. I think it's quite good. And I still don't know if I'm supposed to be playing the green creature land or if I'm just supposed to be playing Faceless Haven. And there's, there's things pulling me in both directions. And... Maybe I'll sort that out eventually, but I have a feeling that's going to be very, very tough to wrap our heads around as to which ultimately makes your deck more successful uh, and will probably change based on other factors in the format. So I, I like that they're added to the format. They bring a few more points of decision into mana bases that I appreciate. Um, and I, I think they're just going to be around. They're not going to be dominant. They're not going to define anything, but they will be here. You'll play them and you'll be pretty happy about it. This, this is the stuff that I like and enjoy about Constructed Magic a lot, where you just have a bunch of options and you get to figure out kind of like week to week what is correct, where, mm. you know, you could certainly make a case for all snow mana base and faceless haven. You could make a case for, well, I want to cast like old growth troll or whatever. So, yeah. you know, this week, I guess I'm playing the green creature lands, but like maybe I still want to play Blizzard Brawl. So I'm still playing some snow lands or whatever. And you just kind of like tune your deck week to week. And I think that that is awesome because it keeps things fresh and interesting. It's not just like, well, this is kind of like the version of Saltai Ultimatum that is good. And you don't have a lot of room to actually tweak. And maybe that deck's a bad example because it was like, you know, Counterspell's main or not week to week. Sure, that's a thing. But ultimately, it's like, you know, your 70 is set in stone or whatever. And... This is not necessarily a great example of it because we're mostly talking about like creature land versus creature land or whatever, not like rotating what two drop is best in any particular metagame or whatever. So this is like a a low key example of that, but it's definitely something that I like to see happening. And at first I was like, well, you know, more creature lands is, is that a good thing when we already have faceless Haven and the more I've been building decks and like experimenting things like that, the more I've liked it, the more I've enjoyed it where it gives you something new to think about. Yeah, I appreciate the contrast a lot. Number nine, Ebon Death, Draco Lich, 2BB, 5-2. Two. 
Legendary creature zombie dragon, flash flying. This enters the battlefield tapped. You may cast this from your graveyard if a creature not named Ebon Death died this turn. A uh, lot of competition in four mana. Two toughness is not ideal, but recurring it doesn't seem that difficult. It doesn't. And the thing that I finally wrap my head around with this card is just that it's not your creatures that have to die. So you're just playing, you know, typical Demir control deck. You're going long. They've killed your uh, Ebon Death a few times this game easily. I mean, it's super fragile, so you're not you're not surprised about that. But now it's the late game. You have a removal spell for their threat. You kill it, and Ebon Death is there in the graveyard, ready to come back at the end of your opponent's turn. So you're not even taking the shields down. I think that play pattern is important enough that this card deserves some mention. It's possible it opens up demure approaches as a real way to play control i'm more excited about that it in that role than just being like part of a sacrifice style deck that doesn't really do much for me like i'd rather this be uh, a one of a two of that i'm i'm coming across and using to control a long game than something that i'm maximizing my deck to be like i can get evan death whenever i want that's not important it's about inevitability with this card for me uh and that is a thing we aren't really seeing right now in standard in part because there are limitations on those types of approaches things like uh emergent ultimatum where you can just win the game for seven mana so why would you mess around with this dinking and five points here five points there and then i'll eventually get you after 25 turns uh with my ebb and death like i love that style of play it just hasn't made a lot of sense for a while but the fact that you never take your shields down is important. Like you can realistically fight against those type of immersion ultimatum game plans now if you are never in a position where you have to put your shields down. So this card interests me for sure. One thing I think that's worth noting is that from building the Rakdos Sacrifice decks, Croxa didn't really fit the overall game plan, but it was a thing that you played mostly for power and mm, to have resiliency. Yeah, to have some resiliency. And this is a better fit in that deck. So that's that is kind of cool to me, where I, I guess it's similar to the creature lands thing, right? It's like, well, maybe you want Croxa this week, and like maybe Ebon Death is slightly better against this deck that's showing up now and whatever. But even if you want to like mix and match, like you you have that option too. So uh I, I don't think that. This is necessarily bad in sacrifice decks. Maybe the sacrifice decks themselves are bad, but uh, you know this gives you another option, which is cool. It's interesting in terms of a replacement for like those sideboard Croxas you used to see all the time, yeah. where the deck had no way to maximize Croxa. Like we're not talking about a timer it calls the dead Meyer Triton deck here. Right. We're talking about something way more focused on the battlefield, and you would just be like, well, eventually I'll get this Croxa. It's not about powering it out. In those spots, yeah, Ebon Death seems like a strict upgrade in most cases. Yeah, and you're like, oh, I got my Croxa out, and they kill it, and you're like, well, I have two cards in my graveyard or whatever. Right. So, right. Yeah, this, this is... Uh, possibly kind of nice there. Number eight, Flame Skull, 1RR, 3-1, Creature Skeleton, Flying. This can't block. When this dies, exile it. If you do, exile the top card of your library until the end of your next turn, you may play one of those cards. So either, again, I'm going to reiterate what I did last week. You can either just cast the Flame Skull or the card that you flipped over. Love that versatility. I think we did a good job going into this card uh, the last time we talked about it. It's it's just going to add long game to mono red decks. Maybe there's some other home for it where you're trying to like recur this multiple times and use it as sacrifice fodder to fuel your village rights or whatever. That's, that's not the path I've explored thus far. I've just wanted it to be a little bit of an insurance policy against any kind of control-ish type deck. And when we talk about like the, the Ebon Death Draco Lich control deck, if that exists ever in the, in the history of you know, this card existing in standard, Flame Skull is going to be the nightmare card unless they find some way to get exiling back on the menu. Uh, and it's been less important lately. You're seeing a lot more like Heartless Axe. And this card will eat Heartless Axe happily all day. Yeah. Uh, I played against this card once already, and I was playing Mono White Aggro, so I glass casketed it. Felt nice. good. Yeah. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention about Ebon Death, though, is a dragon. That kind of matters too. There are some like Dragon Matters cards. So yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, they, not. They felt like plants too. Like, I wonder if there's more dragons coming because it seems like they half supported that theme. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. 
So uh, maybe not the best card for like a dragon deck or whatever, but you know, it's it's there. It matters. Mm-hmm. Number seven, Loyal Warhound, one dub, three one, creature dog, vigilance. When this enters the battlefield, if an opponent controls more lands than you, search your library for a basic planes card, put it onto the battlefield taps, then shuffle. This card makes me so happy. This is a beloved effect. Like people love Knight of the White Orchid. The mid-rangey white creature decks are so awesome. And basically, like any time uh, a card that fits that archetype gets put into like historic or something, I'll I'll try, you know, building a deck. And I was always just like, God, I'm missing, you know, like some sort of like divination thing, something that like helps smooth out my draws. And it was always just like, oh yeah, Knight of the White Orchid. I'm just like missing that card. And that effect matters so much. And granted, this one is way worse. Yes. Uh, the the body is, you know, like a little bit more aggressive. Vigilance on a 3-1, not the greatest thing. Putting the land into play tapped definitely matters because a lot of the time you'd be like, you know, turn three, play knight, make your land drop, play another card. And this just means that you can only do that and follow it up with a one drop, which is a little bit less likely to have an impact or whatever. But... Uh, again, Mono White Aggro was the first deck I played because I wanted to try out this card. And this card is excellent because you have like equipment scaling up and you have the creature lands and you have a relevant four drop that we'll get to at some point and, and stuff like that. So like this, this card is nice. I'm very happy that this exists. Yeah, me too. Uh, even if it's not Knight of the White Orchid, it's still good for something like this to be around. I think White in general got paid really late in preview season and this was one of the cards that came very late in preview season that a lot of us were hyped about uh another really good point in this card's favor is the fact that we've never really seen this effect on a splashable card right like knight of the white orchid demanded not necessarily mono white but you would be extremely heavy white leaning and now this can kind of go into some other spaces maybe like mardu mid-range can benefit from having this and I think it's good for more traditional mid-range to have more paths to victory as opposed to just always being a weird engine deck. And this is just like, play my creature, attack you, accelerate up the curve, play a bigger creature eventually, and and win that way. And I will be very happy if that method of playing Magic is back on the menu. This is pretty good in like green-white company type mm-hmm. of decks. Uh, I had I had something else, but I lost it. I'm sure one day it will come back to you like a good boy always does. Oh, Winota. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, uh, great great two drop for that deck too. So I don't know. I, I like this card. It being splashable is definitely relevant. It's not just like a mono white card. If you're trying to play like, you know, green, white, mid-rangey type stuff, like that, that sort of deck would love this effect too. So uh, this card will probably show up in a lot of spots. I hope so. I hope it's very successful in standard. Number six, this is the other uh, white card I was talking about, Grandmaster of Flowers. Two dub-dub, so four mana total for a legendary Planeswalker, Bahamut. Starting loyalty is three. As long as this has seven or more loyalty counters on him, he's a 7-7 dragon god creature with flying and indestructible. Plus one, target creature without first strike, double strike, or vigilance can't attack or block until your next turn. Plus one, search your library and or graveyard for a card named Monk of the Open Hand. Reveal it, put it in your hand. If you search your library this way, shuffle it. Uh, Monk is uh, white for a 1-1 where it gets a plus one, plus one counter when you play your second spell for the turn. So also like a a pretty reasonable card. Really unique Planeswalker here. Again, doing the mid-range thing really well. Uh, Playing both sides of the equation and acting as your finisher if you're able to protect it long enough. But probably going to see more defensive play i think uh the bubble effect seems good you got to actually get in some games with this card i haven't yet how how good was the bubble were you taking care of what you needed to for the most part i i like that there was some tension where uh you know like my opponent played an annex on three i played this thing shot it down for a little bit uh multiple turns later they were able to like move over their ember cleave Mm. to make it like couldn't bubble that thing and it was the thing that had the most power you know uh and then like at that point this thing was online because the bubble and my creatures were actually like doing work uh so it was a really interesting game that i think would have been much less interesting if like this card didn't exist you know 
Yeah. So I, I, I've enjoyed this card a lot so far. Like it, it's powerful. It does what you want it to do. It's good in creature matchups. It's still solid against control because it's like feeding you uh, more creatures, even if they're kind of like low impact, it's still like a good, pretty good way to recover from a sweeper. And then it itself is a threat. Yeah. So I, I was really happy with this actually. I love that the creatures scale too. Like there is, there is some for potential for them to be meaningful as the game goes long. And they even like fuel the potential to make a second spell and to yeah. empower them a little bit. The fact that you can grab them from the graveyard, I think is the real game changer. Yes. With this card, you just have uh, your, even if you can't hard bubble, here's like your bit of blossom effect where every single turn you're able to go get one of these monks and have it on the battlefield. And I think that there's a lot of ways to convert cardboard to more as well. So I'm not going to say it's better that this card goes into your hand as opposed to on the battlefield when you use the plus one to go find a monk, but it's interesting and it opens up some other lines. Uh, I, again, I'm just hopeful this is a meaningful card because this feels like pure mid range. And uh, it, it, lately it's been like aggro or engine or just go bigger than everyone. And if there is some space for cards like this to matter, I think we're in a really good spot. Yeah, I will note that between this and the creature lands and it feeding me more creatures and the potential for moving equipment around, like I just never really ran out of things to do with my mana. Mm -hmm. So that's like another point in Loyal Warhounds camp where it's not it's not just about like hitting your fourth land drop and casting this and then that's it or whatever. It's like, no, that that planes pays you for a long time. Yeah. No, I think that's important for getting the most out of that card. And I think that's actually a common theme with the really good cards in this set as they have the capacity to pay you uh, across surpluses of mana, basically. There, there's no real... They're flood mitigation, but not in the form of like Hydroid Crisis, where they present this ridiculous snowball that's just impossible to overcome. They're flood mitigation in the fact they make the games interesting on the battlefield, right. which I just love. Yeah. And I, I mean, so that game that I played, I had this thing up to a 7-7. Seven, seven. I had drawn a couple extra monks. I was like locking my opponent down. I eventually lost that game because they're able to protect Annex with uh, the Embercleave on it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so it, it was like I, I'm doing these really good, powerful things. And so is my opponent. We had a bunch of decisions and, you know, I'm working this four mana planeswalker and it feels good, but like you still end up losing. And it just like, that seems really cool to me where yeah. it's not hydroid crisis, like you were saying, right? It's like, you're, you're doing this thing that allows you to feel like you're still playing, but it's not just a thing where it's like, oh, well, this is silly and it's just lights out. Back and forth. Back and forth is the key to magic, for sure. Yes. Uh, number five. I think this is going to be a, a heavily debated pick, perhaps. Prosperous Innkeeper. 1G, 1-1 creature, halfling citizen. When this enters the battlefield, create a treasure. Whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, you gain one life. This uh, was one of the early preview cards, and I was like, eh, this like, seems okay, but what are we doing with this? Uh Brian, tell me. Whatever you want, Gerald. Uh, <laughs> making, Good answer. Good answer. Making a treasure attached to a two-mana body, if that body has any upside, it's awesome. Sometimes if that body is complete garbage, it's still awesome. It, it, it's just such a useful ability. The fact that you're making two pieces of cardboard out of one will come up quite often. Uh, and... In a world that is as powerful as our current standard is, where there are these hard limiters on the format, if you're playing a little bit ahead of curve, that's a really, really good place to be. So what I love most about Prosperous Innkeeper is the treasure ability for sure. There's other places, though, uh, in this set to go and get those treasures. So I think if Prosperous Innkeeper really shines, it's going to be on the back of that secondary clause, the life gain stuff. And there is just enough life gain floating around where I'm interested in it. Uh, there's things like the the white book, which I've seen some people messing with. Uh, we know kind of the old life gain cards that have been around for a while now. And look, mono white life gain has been on the fringes of success a few times now. Another uh, another deck I keep rebuilding because Heliod is pretty dope. Right. And 
maybe this is how you're supposed to do it. And that deck also was very mana hungry. You you really needed to get onto the battlefield. So now you're doing prosperous, prosperous innkeeper stuff. Maybe you're doing the uh, loyal warhound package in there as well. And you're able to get to these late game states where something like Heliod can matter because you're able to spend your mana enough to keep up with the more powerful stuff in the format. I think that's exactly what some of these mid-range decks were looking for. Uh, and, and this won't be the last two mana creature that can make a treasure I'm going to talk about today. Yeah, one one thing I really like about this, you know, compared to Wily Goblin, for example, is like Wily Goblin was very, very specific and very hard to cast. And this can just show up in a bunch of different places. And there are a lot of, you know, things to do with treasures in this set. And also there's just like Goldspan Dragon, which not only you want to accelerate into, but also makes your treasures like a little bit better. And uh, Magda is obviously a pretty big one too. And even before this set, we were building decks with like Gadrak and all these other kind of like nonsensey things. Uh, But now there's a ton of treasure support. Yeah, and that has been the uh, bulk of my focus during this first day is trying to maximize this treasure stuff. And uh, Sam Black wrote an article today proposing that the treasure stuff might be the best stuff in the set. Kind of agree. Uh, in terms of like moving the needle, I, I do think it's there. I, I think it's different and has the potential to change things up where a lot of this set is just like, oh, here's a role player. Here's something that fits in, you know, in this slot. But the treasure stuff is unique. It's powerful. Uh, and it, it has impressed so far. Yeah, it's cool. It's synergy based. And, you know, obviously Sam likes it because it's just like game objects moving around. Right. And he gets to work his incremental advantages. And he's really good at figuring out when that stuff is good. So, yeah. Number four, kind of in tandem with this stuff. Shambling Ghast, B, 1-1, creature zombie. When this dies, choose one. Target creature gets a target creature and opponent controls gets minus one, minus one until end of turn or create a treasure token. Uh you know, Festering Goblin has showed up occasionally. This is a zombie, which also could matter. But like uh, a Doom Traveler that dies and makes a treasure is like, OK, I, I like this. This this looks pretty nice. And I think that that is what you're going to be doing the vast majority of the time. But you still have this other option. And the option has mattered a bunch for me. I, I'm playing this card a lot in my early decks. I, I think like I've posted two lists to Twitter today and both had four copies of this card where I don't think anyone else is super hyped about it, maybe with the exception of Sam. But uh, I, I think Dude, I love this card. I brought this card up, too. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think this is a very real constructed magic card, particularly given the context of the format where there are a lot of very strong X ones around and ones that are problematic to deal with. There's things like Toski. Uh, there is Elite Spellbinder all the time. There is Seasoned Hollow Blade. So all of those cards are very much at risk to shambling gas taking them out but you can also just get very far ahead of the curve with this card while producing again game objects which you can make matter in other ways you mentioned gadrick uh goldspan dragon turning them into super treasures will come up a bunch of the times so uh, there's a lot of utility here for a very very cheap card when frankly there's not a lot of competition for one drops in the black decks dude so, we were we were playing eye twitch man right get that out Right. You will be very happy to replace that with Shambling Ghast. Uh, it is a wholly better card. And uh, a, a couple other treasure cards I want to touch on, too. Do you have anything else you want to say about Shambling Ghast before I, I get to these other cards? No. So putting these at, at four and five wasn't necessarily an indictment of the power of Prosperous Innkeeper so much as like we wanted multiple treasure things on the top 10 list and like things that kind of did different things and fueled different archetypes. So really this, this could be like four or five cards deep as far as like the treasure makers are concerned. But I think that these are kind of the two where they're, they're going to show up in, in different spots most of the time and, you know, kind of speak to what we're talking about, but yeah, we can't talk about these without talking about the other ones. Yeah, I think I have three, actually, I want to mention. First one, Unexpected Windfall. This is RR2 instant. As an additional cost to cast the spell, discard a card, draw two cards, and create two treasure tokens. So I post about this card on Twitter. I say, pretty sure this card is bonkers. I haven't seen any mention of it elsewhere. Everyone shows up in my mentions telling me about Pirate's Pillage. And uh, there's even another version that has closely mimicked this card in the path 
So, oh, they're talking about Pirates Pillage, the card that is already seeing play. It's like, yeah. A, yeah. As, as like a, a thing to refute your argument. In in historic, too. I mean, it sees some play there. So there, there's a reason this effect matters a lot. But now we've moved it to instant speed. And not only is there that adjustment, which is huge, because I want you to think of the scenario where you're being punished, you're playing from behind, and you're just desperate. You're about to get buried, and you have your four mana play, and you leave your mana open, and uh-oh, they went all in, they played their Ember Cleave. If I get hit, I'm I'm doomed. I can't win this game. We'll cash in this, go looking for your removal spell, and just play it, because you get returns on two mana right away. Uh, I think that's an extremely impactful line that will come up a lot and is is versatility at instant speed, which makes this card so, so much better than sorcery speed equivalents. But more importantly, I think is the broader, there's this broader context out there. And Tybalt is a real card. It costs seven mana. And this is just one step to turn five Tybalt and also help helping you find your Tybalt as well. And that wasn't necessarily true at other points. And there's other stuff like Ugin out there too. So this functioning as a ramp spell does so, so much to open the possibility of playing things like red midrange, black midrange, because as we talked about, you're under limitations from these ultimatum decks and that comes up over and over and you have to be able to move the needle a little bit. I think this card does a really strong job of doing so. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it, to, to me, my initial reaction is like, oh, it does, it costs a lot up front, but when you talk about the scenario where it's like, oh, you're under pressure and you're using this to find your removal spell, like, yeah, you just get to cash in the two treasures for a rebate. It's like, it's basically costing two mana in, you know, the same way that like Pirate's Pillage is. Uh, yeah. But when you're not necessarily under a ton of pressure, you, you're not forced to cash in the treasures right away. It's like you play this, you untap, you play Goldspan Dragon and have infinity mana <laughs> effectively. Or yeah, you're talking about ramping into uh Tybalt or Ugin or something like that it's like okay yeah I'm, I'm starting to see it like you're getting more for your investment than Pirate's Pillage like Pirate's Pillage is like kind of small ball this is like yes you are paying up front for it but the return is like so much greater totally agree uh I hope we see some of this card because it again means standards in a pretty good place if this is seen some play probably unless it does like broken combo things which it has potential to do by the way it does like, it does the cost reduction can matter a lot uh, this next card, not one I had on my radar, and then I played some games with it, and I was like, oh, this this is not what I thought it was. Uh, Kalein, Reclusive Painter. This is RB, Legendary Creature, Human Elf Bard. When Kalein, Reclusive Painter, enters the battlefield, create a treasure token. So I, I'm already like halfway there, and that is that is a good starting point for a creature. It's it's here's, basically Prosperous Innkeeper, so... <laughs> yeah, so here's what we get in addition to that. Other creatures you control enter the battlefield with an additional plus one, plus one counter on them for each mana from a treasure spent to cast them. Uh, this gets out of hand very quickly if your deck is making a lot of treasures. And we're going to talk a bunch about scaling cards as we go through the rest of this top 10. Uh, but there are some cards which you can basically dump infinite mana into as much as you have. If you happen to have them like in combination with a Goldspan Dragon, uh, you're just making big dum-dumps. And moving key threats like Goldspan Dragon from being a 4-4 to being a 5-5 or a 6-6 or however they're moving up the scale, it can matter so, so much. And like I said, we're already happy with the baseline. So if this card also once a game gives one of your creatures plus two plus two or it just does absurd things and distributes plus six plus six across a bunch of creatures have you gotten your return for two mana absolutely and in, in spades and i actually think this card is super powerful i wasn't prepared to, for it to have the impact on my games that it did yeah it's interesting because a lot of the uh game plans of these decks is going to be like kind of incrementally building up treasures and then finding something to do with them. And then that yep. just means that you're getting a lot more power out of your mid-game stuff. And there's also just relevant things that matter with uh, sizing in mirror matches, like Goldspan Dragon Mirrors, where like you can just like play yours as a 5-5, five five, and then now they can't attack with theirs as a 4-4, four four, right? So, there, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff that you can do that actually matters, and this can translate into a pseudo-fireball kind of late. So pretty good early pretty good late game like you know what more do you want 
Yeah. So last card I'll mention, Forsworn Paladin. This is uh, 1B. I actually don't have the card in front of me. I'm going to try and do this from memory. Uh, 1B for a 1-1 Menace. For one colorless, one black tap, pay one life, create a treasure token. And then two colorless black target creature you control gets plus 2-0. If you use mana from a treasure to pay for this, that creature also gets death touch. It's, so, any, it's any creature. Any creature. Correct. Any creature. Otherwise, so Otherwise, you nailed it. Uh, what, what do we have for creature types on this? Remind me. Human knight. So Human knight. knight is potentially relevant too. Potentially. Uh, so plus 2-0. Nice. You distribute that all of the battlefield. We're already talking about dealing with a lot of mana. Uh, but what really sold me on this is the ability to grant death touch and how that combines in situations with trample because i think there's a very meaningful trample card in this set and already i've played a bunch of games where like you know naya adventures does their thing and their thing is powerful they flood the battlefield they have clarion spirits going off and they're drawing cards all over the place and showing them the scalds is distributing counters uh but i have forsworn paladin and i am able to give my trampler a little boost, a little death touch, and uh, it doesn't really matter how big they get at that point. This can just end games. Again, not a lot of competition at the one drop slot. I didn't think this card was would impress me, but much like Kalein, I played it and was kind of blown away. I thought it was extremely powerful. Yeah, this is a card that I don't feel like I would want to play as a four of unless you can really do something with it. But like having a couple copies as a mana sink seems really good to me. Yeah, you could go that route, maybe back off a little bit. I could see that. Um, and also, you know, if your deck has some ways to rebuy this stuff, again, foreshadowing, uh, I, I think you're completely fine reducing the number of copies you will play. Sure. Anything else on treasures? No, uh, I'm, I'm just excited about treasures now. Uh, a lot of it has to do with what will ultimately be our number one card, but uh, I, I do think the synergies are there. And if, you know, the last few weeks of modern have taught you anything. You should be aware of what it means when you just get stuff for free. Right. Like when things are just entering the battlefield, it's very easy to make that matter. Yep. Number three, werewolf pack leader, GG33, creature, human werewolf. Whenever this attacks, if you attacked with creatures uh, with total power six or greater, this combat draw card and 3G until end of turn, this has base power and toughness, 5-3 gains trample and isn't a human. Uh, this could also potentially be Ranger class, and mm. a lot of the classes are pretty interesting, and I'm kind of disappointed that there's not one on the top 10 necessarily, because I do think that they'll show up in various spots, but this seems like more of a slam dunk for Mono Green than Ranger class necessarily, and I did want a representative of that archetype on here. Yeah, I think Mono Green was a big winner, and I, I plan on playing both Werewolf Pack Leader and Ranger Class in my Mono Green deck. I Same. Those are great pickups, and the amount of card advantage that this deck has now is pretty absurd. Uh, pack Leader is just so good in scenarios where you have like other three power two drops. It's it's almost laughable how how quickly this draws you cards, and it's doing that with like this upside of being pumpable and you know, a trampling late game threat, and it doesn't even have to get involved in combat for you to get the payoff. So uh, I I think there's like a level where you just be like, okay, green has enough card advantage. We really don't have to do stuff like this anymore. <laughs> this but, is a good version of card advantage. Though. Right, it's just good. I mean, a two mana three three is what you want anyway. So I don't think there's any way you're passing on this card. And I do think it's a needle mover for mono green. Like it makes the deck substantially better. It, it's still doing the same thing. So it needs its plan to be good, to shine. Uh, but in terms of just like baseline quality, I think this has accelerated mono green, green quite a bit. Yeah, it was always a struggle for for two drops. I mean, one drops too to some degree, but like two yeah. drops for sure. It was like uh, playing like Sir Farron and like Tangled Florahedron. And now it's just like, oh, we just have a bunch of like good twos now. Great. Yeah, twos got way better with the release of this set. And it'll be interesting to see how well Mono Green can convert that. You know, while people are messing around with nonsense, I could see Mono Green absolutely running away with things during the first few weeks yeah and uh, i think that this card should be a pretty big reason why because it's just again good early scales pretty well late game i think that there are a decent amount of ways to actually you know like pump this thing or give it indestructible mm -hmm. or whatever and yeah it's just a, a mana sink too it gets 
trample so it's a way to like push through the final points of damage potentially like it just kind of checks all the boxes it wouldn't shock me at all to see this in historic gruel either i think it's good enough to see play there for sure uh, i think it's tougher there because of the mana requirement but uh definitely like on power it could be really good curves really good curves there are things like this as your two drop into uh gruel spellbreaker yeah. super appealing yep. so no I, I definitely agree with that but like you know, it doesn't play well with Burning Tree Emissary. It that's does one, not. That's one of their fair. stronger cards. So yep. I think you might just be stuck in Voltaic Brawler land. Maybe. Maybe true. Number two. Uh, I don't know if, if this is Imrith or Imrith. I'm going to go with Imrith. I would go with Imrith too. So that means it's almost certainly wrong. Oh, damn. Uh, Desert Doom. Three UU, five, five. Legendary creature, dragon, flying, this has Ward 4 as long as it's untapped. Whenever this deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. Then if you have fewer than three cards in hand, draw cards equal to the difference. I'd, I'd fight you on this one, Brian, I feel like. Well, okay. You sort of did. It, it's less that I don't believe in this card. I think it's very, very good. It's more that I just think this is a card that is going to benefit a lot from rotation. I think the style of True. magic being played right now is not great for Imrith, but as far as raw power, it, it's almost impossible not to compare this card to Dragon Lord Ojitai, which, you know, has some, I, I guess, modern pedigree, like it showed up from time to time. <laughs> so, I don't know if it was so. correct, but it, it, it was there occasionally, and y you can see why. A very powerful effect. As we get back to a realm where tap out control is realistic, and it's not just about ramping to seven mana and I win the game for control decks, I think Imrith becomes real appealing. And, you know, maybe it also can do mid rangey stuff where it's just part of a beatdown plan alongside things like Brazen Borrower, and you're just trying to end games more quickly. Uh, Imrith is going to be really good in those spots as well because there just aren't a lot of ways to kill this profit. Yeah, there's uh, Run Afoul out of sideboards. That's probably the best option. And I, th I think the argument against this is kind of what you talked about, where it's like, oh, these, these mid-range decks you know, aren't really successful right now. Or uh, there's a lot of competition at the five mana slot, right? Like if you're playing, is it, uh, maybe you can, you can just call it dragons at this point. Uh, yeah. You know, do you want to play this over Goldspan Dragon? And it's like, oh, I, th I think you play some amount of both. You know, maybe it's 3-2 or 3-3 three, three or whatever. But I think that this is pretty solid. It is nice that you can spend five mana and kind of know that it's going to have the effects and then just like you know the effect just like sticking around and and doing stuff and then it has like the the ojitai thing going on for it where you know they're going to pass the turn keep up with two mana you don't have to attack with it or like maybe now you have a counter spell or something and i think that a lot of these decks can also take advantage of having fewer than three cards in your hand right it's not just like yeah you know, hit you, draw a card, like, oh, that's that's way worse than Ojutai. Maybe that's not good enough. Well, I think that if you play this in Bant or Is It, it wouldn't be that difficult to imagine scenarios where you're drawing two or three cards. No, I, I think you're right. Is It in particular, which has things like Prismari Command, which is a, a useful effect, but at negative card quantity. Yeah. Um, it even has the effect of like ramping you into this card, which is pretty cool. Um, and then it becomes even harder to kill at that point, right? Like the earlier you get Imrith online, the more difficult it is for your opponent to deal with. So... I like that a lot. Um, if there is some Demir control deck, which is like its win conditions is like a one of Imrith, a one of Ebon Death, and a one of Blue Creature Land, I will absolutely be in my element. Like that will yeah. warm my cold, dead heart to see a setup like that be the way for a control deck to win because it's been so long. Like that sounds like a 2009 control deck win condition suite right like a little bit of everything they have different functions but ultimately one of these cards is going to be too much for your opponent to deal with you're going to win the game um but, but i think in the future this card can really shine like i said when we get away from this ultimatum defined metagame um there's just a bunch of cards that go really well with this we talked a little bit about classes. Uh, Monk class is a card that I abstractly like, but I think falls into the same problem where I want to do something a little bit more fair. And I want to kind of look at like a Monk class control deck alongside Imerith. Um, there, there's just a bunch of angles to explore once the format opens up a little bit. I like Monk class too. I feel like, I don't know, playing it alongside like five mana cards is probably not where you want to be, but... 
it is it is definitely interesting. It's it's strange though because if you if you have enough like cantrip set up, I think it's fine to do that. You just have to have that lower part of your curve as well. So this is all yeah. very theoretical. Like we need to know what's in the next set before I can even guesstimate whether that's something I can successfully do. But the idea of these card advantage engines, which are also accomplishing something else, is real cool. And don't sleep on how important this card is on defense. Like you you can just never attack with it, have it stay back, have it be very safe with its ward ability, and shut down a lot of the premier threats in the format. Goldspan Dragon is the first one to come to mind for sure. Yeah. I mean it it brick walling their Goldspan Dragon pretty safely is uh definitely a huge boon for this card. Mm-hmm. Unless they have that Kalein, I'm telling you, watch out for that card. <laughs> well, then, then you're trading, and it's kind of whatever. I guess you right. get a, no. A, we're, we're putting two man into this. Are you kidding me? We're going oh. up to six six with the gold span. Word. Okay, you're all in. Number one card, and this is card that we both believe in. Maybe you a little bit more than me, and it, it's always so risky, Brian, saying that a Rakdos card is going to be good. I know because you need those colors to be good. Orcus, Prince of Undeath, X two B R. 5-3, Legendary Creature Demon, Flying, Trample. When this enters the battlefield, choose one. Each other creature gets minus X, minus X until end of turn. You lose X life or return up to X target creature cards with total mana value X or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. They gain haste until end of turn. I got ahead of myself. I want to go straight to the battlefield. You left off some important text. 5-3. Five, 5-3 three. Five, three is a baseline. No, I, I, I do mana cost, power toughness, creature type. Okay, never yeah. mind. Well, it's, five three is important. It's big. And uh it, it's real big. It's real big. Flying trample. Those are really nice abilities going together. The absolute basement of this card is acceptable. And that's where we start with. I, I have most of the games I've played today have been with Orcus because I do believe it's the best card in the set. Uh I've played it on turn four or you know, my four mana spot a bunch, and I've been happy with it. Uh, because that lets you play effective mid-range games where you're able to pressure life totals early more importantly though are these two abilities and i i think just like we talked about with shambling ghast earlier it's hard to fathom just how many x1s you are dealing with presently until you have orcas in your deck and you're like oh wait if i play this for five mana i'm just single-handedly wrathing my opponent's side of the battlefield and still getting this 5-3 left behind. And that's just, again, these are all like pretty minimum situations. If you're able to go late, you're doing things with treasures maybe, and you're producing lots of mana, maybe you're just doing this where X is 5, and you're wrathing your opponent's entire battlefield. Or maybe you're just bringing back three creatures with this, and they're all meaningful, and it changes the game immediately because they have haste and they're just getting into the battlefield like i had a spot where i returned uh i, I orcus for five i returned magda Kalane, and forsworn paladin and then just on the next turn i was set up to win because i have the combination of forsworn paladin uh death touch trample and my opponent can't do anything so these are just a few of the things that have come up thus far i think there's multitudinous homes for this you could do traditional rakdos mid-range and you know try and do the go big thing with turn five tybalt on the back of our treasure makers that's acceptable uh i messed around with like bard class decks focused around orcus where you just return a bunch of powerful legends to the battlefield because you're doing things like making mana with the sika and bard class um, there's the small ball treasure type stuff you can do with Orcus. It, it just all gets so much better when you have access to this card. And I was high on it during preview season. I had a feeling it would be my number one card. I played with it today and nothing changed my mind. I, I just think this card is tremendous. It kills all the edge wall innkeepers. That's all I really need to know. Great point. You know what else, though? It can buy back your Edgewall Innkeepers if that's what you're into. That's like if you true. want to look at Jund Adventures and just you always have Edgewall Innkeepers, but you're controlling your opponents all the time, I think that's interesting, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. This card, I mean, it's it's modal, and all the modes are pretty pretty good, and it like it just scales so well into the late game. Yeah. And, you know, like both the abilities are potentially game winners even at, like, one or two mana, right? So... 
we we have to at least investigate this card, but I'm pretty sure that it's just very, very, very good. Yeah, the spots I was in with this card when I was doing like Goldspan Dragon, Colleen stuff, and just making tremendous orcuses, to say nothing of like their impact immediately on the battlefield when you do that. The body you get, the, the trampling flyer who's just bigger than everything else on the battlefield, uh, it, it felt great. And I am convinced that this is a needle mover. I think there is still a hole for this style of decks, though. There's the emergent ultimatum hole, and that isn't going to change. But this helps close the gap a little bit where you're able to consistently uh, get very aggressive in the early game thanks to the fact that you can just play Orcus for four or maybe play it on turn three if you're accelerating in some way, maybe with Shambling Ghast. All that stuff gives you a fighting chance against these mid-range decks because you are able to get your clock online more quickly. Yeah, I think you have you have more of a clock, you have more threats and more things that they have to binding, which means that stuff like Roiling Vortex could actually end up being good against them. Right. And uh, the, the Treasure Thoughtseize, I think, is completely reasonable, too, if you want to go that route. Uh, otherwise, you, you still have duress, you know. So I think clock and more relevant stuff and just a, a better plan overall was kind of what Rakdos needed. And now you have it. So... I mean, they they also had the ability to potentially grind out the first emergent ultimatum. It was just like you got buried in card advantage, you know. Right. But right. in in these instances, like if you have a clock going and you can also, you know, kill their Vorinclex and maybe kill their Planeswalker too, or just ignore it or whatever, then I think you're pretty well set up to beat them, you know. So it's not like oh man, I have to sideboard like twelve cards and like still I'm winning thirty percent of the time or whatever. Now I think that you actually have a fighter's chance, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Look, if you're pushing that matchup to forty five percent, but you're really strong against all the other stuff going on. Like I said, this card's kind of a natural predator for things like Naya Adventures, uh, things like Mono White, Mono Red. Yeah, a little dicey. You know, you're giving up some life total to go ahead and and sweep. But it's fine, though. They kill you in big burst, man. It's the same as mono white. Like, they're a little bit That's faster, fair. you know. That's fair. But yep. say, say you, like, kill Annex and then clean up all their stuff, or you get to kill, like, all their fervent champions for kind of for free, you know. Like, those things matter because you get to contain their board. Their Ember Cleave's a lot clunkier, less good. And yeah. you have this thing that clocks them on, on the backswing. So I could see it mattering there, too. Or even you just, like, trade a bunch in the early game, and then you bring yeah, back a bunch of rebuilds. Uh, yeah, I think all of these play patterns are important and exactly what Rakdos wants to be doing right now. So that is why this card is going to settle in at number one for me. Uh, I, I think probably if we did our own lists, you you would have swapped Imrith and Orcus. Is that fair? Uh, maybe, but I think uh, my own list probably would have come with the caveat that I think that this is all, all pretty relatively flat in power level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that, yeah, Imrith maybe would have still been number one because it is potentially the most powerful and is going to show up in a lot of different spots and i think is just generally going to be very good but it's not like oh i'm like you know way more excited to play that card because it's so much better than shambling gas or whatever i'm just like nah they're kind of the same to me you know yeah yeah but like i said ultimately I i'm pretty excited about this set it came to be in a pretty good place uh i've had a good first day building decks and there's still a few more ideas I want to tap into. I don't think it'll have the longevity of like some earlier sets, but for a uh, full standard, a max size standard, not a bad showing. No, it's it's really not that bad, especially compared to the last few sets that we've had where it was actually kind of painful to make a top 10 list, you know, and yeah. this one was just like, yeah, we got uh, eight that we were super happy with. And then it was just kind of like deciding how we were going to round it out. And it also has a bunch of stuff that we're actually excited to try. Whereas with Strixhaven, it was just like, I don't know, man, like we just skip it, you know? Um, we tried, but unfortunately, uh, I guess it was just really Paulo showing up and that was about it. Otherwise, yeah. we mostly did skip that set. Yeah. And I eventually, thankfully, uh, Modern Horizons 2 came out, you know, it's so like that right. actually got my attention for a, a long time and like still has it, you know? But yep. yeah, this set, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm back to playing arena for at least like the next few days, maybe next week or two. Good. I look forward to joining you in that and uh, battling you through many, 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 many games as we fight on the ladder for glory prizes and the potential to be magic world champion. Oh, uh, well, n none of that is reality. Oh, oh, 
Okay, I'll just keep playing then. I don't know why. I, I just keep doing it. I also started at Bronze 1 because I have not played in forever. So I don't know where you are, but... Uh, right about the same. Yeah, okay. floating, floating around Silver silver 3, I think now. So, okay. Okay. you know, nothing but the best competition yeah. thus far for evaluating these cards. But ultimately, I don't care what the opponent is doing on the other side when I'm trying to figure out how good a card is. It's more about play patterns. And, yeah, uh, I'm trying to learn I, stuff. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Game! Good luck.